0: So our scripture this morning is in uh, actually looking in the Old Testament this morning. We're in Isaiah chapter 6. Today is Trinity Sunday and uh, this is actually one of the lectionary readings for this day, but I thought it would be a good one to preach on as well this morning. We don't often hear from the Old Testament. We're in Isaiah chapter 6 and this is, um, by the way, a uh, well, as you'll see it as we unpack it. This is the, that text where Isaiah has this vision of God. In fact, scholars believe that Isaiah was in the temple in Jerusalem when he had this vision of God, and there are hints of that in the text. But he has this vision of God where he sees the angels surrounding the throne and they're calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. If you've, if you've been engaging your heart in worship this morning, you've got, a, you've got a taste of what it is to be in God's presence and to worship God and to experience that. I hope you had some taste of that this morning. And uh, so let's hear uh, Isaiah's story. And as I said uh, Scholars believe that this probably happened while he was in the temple. And in the New Testament, by the way, just as an aside, in the New Testament, those of us who are in Christ especially, Scripture says we are already seated in the heavenly realms, which means God isn't out there somewhere, but we're already in the presence of God. There's a very thin veil between the eternal and the temporal, between earth and heaven. And we are even now, this morning as we've been worshiping, we are in the presence of God. And the Apostle Paul and others, Hebrew scholars, believe that when we worship God, the angels are worshiping with us. The angels are worshiping with us. So that's the vision that Isaiah has, and uh, let's, hear, let's hear his, his experience I'm reading from chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken, from the tongs, taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. This is God's Word. Would you like to see God... Be careful before you answer that. If you were here last Sunday and heard Pastor Amy's uh, message, you'll know that sometimes seeing God or experiencing God will be a dislocating experience. If I told you that I see God or that I have seen God, you may question my sanity or my sense of reality. Or you might say, as Scripture says, Come on, Pastor ASAP. No one can see God and live. Moses, for example, asked God to reveal himself to him. Moses wanted to see God, and God said, You can't handle me, Moses. God says, But tell you what, I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock with my hand, and after I pass by, you can see my backside. All of this is very interesting if you think about it. God is spirit. Spirit. He is invisible, so what is there to see? But if we could see, what would we see? An old man with a long white beard? A burning hot white light? Something that is too glorious or too terrifying for words? Protestants, evangelicals in particular, often read the Bible literally, but that's not always the best way to read it. Spiritual realities are often communicated and maybe best communicated in earthly images, icons, and metaphors that aren't meant to be taken literally, but communicate as best as we're able to grasp, if that makes sense. For example, God is described in the Bible in ways that we can understand and grasp and not necessarily what is the literal truth. God is often described in the Bible in, in what scholars call anthropomorphic terms. It's a big word. You want to say that with me? Anthropomorphic. What that means is that human characteristics are attributed to God. For example, uh, Scripture speaks of God's face or God's ears or God's eyes or the hands of God. And yet God is not human. He is not physical like we are. He is spirit. And... Uh, Scripture says that we're made in His image, but that does not mean that we look like God or that He looks like us. On the cover of the bulletin this morning is an icon, an image from the Russian Orthodox Church. It's a, it's a fairly well-known um, icon. It's an artist depiction of the Trinity, today's Trinity Sunday. It depicts the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In fact, if I was to, we could probably even unpack that image, but I won't take much time to do that. The figure, the... The image of the figure on the left is God the Father. He's dressed in gold. Uh, the figure in the middle is Christ, uh, the blue indicating coming from heaven, the red robe that he's wearing ind- indicative of the blood that he shed for us. If you notice the two fingers he's holding, it reminds us of the, huma- the two natures of Christ, his humanity and his divinity. And then the figure on the right is the Holy Spirit uh, dressed in the colors of the earth, green and red, the song we just sung, uh, the Holy Spirit who, who gives life who is life-giving. So that's an image, a depiction of... of and, and they're seated at a table, which represents symbolizes fellowship. They're gathered around one table, the three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're at table together, in, in a symbol of fellowship, and they're in communion, and the word communion means to be one with. So here it is, an artist's depiction of the one God who is made up of three persons. I found it uh, not surprising, but a little disappointing. Uh, you know, when the book The Shack came out a number of years ago and then the movie version last summer, uh, some people were disturbed by that, by the image of God the Father being portrayed as a, as a large black woman. I rather liked the image. I mean, it's just, uh, why not? Is it any different than portraying God as, a, as an old man with a, 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 an old white man with a long white beard? God will be and appear to us in any way that we need Him to, and not always in the ways that we think or want Him to appear. He may appear to us as a pillar of fire, a cloud by day, a burning bush, a stranger, an unexpected visitor, a thirsting child, a rabbi, a carpenter, a still small voice, or anything else that you might least expect. Some still have a hard time accepting that God has come to us in the form of a Middle Eastern man, a Jew, with typically Jewish features and a decidedly Jewish mother. And what do the Scriptures say about Jesus? That He is the exact representation of the invisible God. I mean, if you want God with skin on, it's Jesus. God with skin on. God became one of us. He's the exact representation of the invisible God. Jesus said to his disciples, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus, the Messiah, is the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, eternal with the Father. He and the Father are one but not the same. The same is true of the Holy Spirit. And this is the Trinity, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in in a kind of relationship or dynamic that is, in a sense, incomprehensible to us. We can't fully grasp what that means, that there's one God in three persons. And that this God is is complete and in utter unity, the the fountain, the source of life and light and love. We are God-centered with the focus on Jesus Christ. Jesus is the clearest revelation of God, God in the flesh, and it is the Holy Spirit who comes to us and opens our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our our minds to grasp, and our hearts to believe what we read, what we hear, what we see, what we experience. I've always liked um, Alfred Alfred Lord Tennyson, uh, his statement about God from his poem, The Higher Pantheism. Uh, this is what he wrote. This is, this is his one statement that, that sort of always has stuck with me. He's speaking of God. For all we have power to see is a straight staff bent in a pool. All that we have power to see of God is a straight staff bent in a pool. What that means is that, that the, the, the staff is straight, it doesn't, it doesn't bend, it's not distorted. The staff is straight, but when you stick it into the medium of water, it appears to be bent, right? All that's saying is that our best understanding, our best grasp of who God is, is somehow skewed. It's a, it's a bit distorted. Our image and understanding of the eternal is distorted by the temporal. The spiritual is skewed by the physical. The infinite is deflected by what is finite. We can see, but not perfectly, on this side of heaven. But that doesn't mean that we can't see or even that we, can't, or even that we shouldn't trust what we do see. The biblical writers describe God as best that they are able with the limits of language and their own experience. So let's look a little more closely at what Isaiah saw and how that experience impacted him. Isaiah puts his his experience in a historical context. In other words, a a specific point in time. He he says, in the year that King Uzziah died. well, Uzziah was king of Judah. In fact, he reigned for some 50 years in Judah. He was one of the better kings in Judah's history, and he was a godly king until late. He made some mistakes late in his his reign, but for the most part, he was a much-loved king, had a long and illustrious reign uh, in Judah, the the, uh, southern kingdom of Israel. And this was the year that he died. And uh, it reminds me a bit, when you think about a, a, um, a long and illustrious reign, not unlike Queen Elizabeth, the longest reigning monarch in the U.K., Sixty-six years. But how does a long-reigning monarch who is much loved and highly regarded in all their regal or royal position compare to the king of kings and the lord of lords? Isaiah's vision of, of the eternal ruler of heaven and earth is placed in the context and the conclusion of an earthly ruler's reign. This was a time of change, a time of transition for Isaiah, for Judah, for Israel, and times of change and transitions when a long and much-loved and a good ruler has passed. What's next? What's next? leaves us wondering and sometimes fearful of the future. Kings and princes, prime ministers and presidents come and go. But there is one who sits on the throne who is eternal. It is a reminder. The fact that, that, that Isaiah experiences this vision of God in the year that Uzziah passed was, was a reassurance to him that God is indeed on the throne. I got this. I got this, Isaiah. Heaven and earth are in good hands. First Isaiah says I saw the Lord that alone should give us pause and make our our ears pick up. Really? Really? Isaiah, who has seen God? You saw him? What was that like? What did you see? What did you hear? What did you feel? How did that impact you? How did that change you, Isaiah? How are you different as a result of seeing the Lord? He answers all of these questions. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. There was something grand and lofty and extravagant about the vision that Isaiah saw. He says, remember again, this this, this was a vision in, in the temple. Perhaps there were other worshipers around him. But for some reason, the veil was pulled away so that Isaiah could see the spiritual realities that were going on right there in the context of the worship in the temple. He sees this extravagant view of the Lord seated on the throne. He says, the train of his robe filled the temple. That's interesting. God's wearing a robe. What did you expect him to be wearing? And there's a train on his robe, a really massive one. It fills the temple. Isaiah is describing what you might see of a king or a regal figure, a reigning monarch, presumably far more grand than anything that people might have seen during King Uzziah's reign, or any other earthly ruler. If you saw the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle last weekend, now the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, you maybe saw the train of her dress. You know, if you, if you watched any of it, there was much ado about her dress. And about the train of the dress in particular, it was, it was uh, five meters long, 16 and a half feet took 500 hours to make. You're wondering, why in the world would I care about this? Because the text talks about the train of the Lord's robe. There were 53 flowers embroidered on uh, Megan's dress on that, on that train, representing the 53 nations of the Commonwealth. As elegant as Megan's dress and train was in its simplicity, it was minuscule and paltry compared to the train on the Lord's robe. Which Isaiah says filled the temple. Meghan's train could fill my study here at the church. God's train filled the temple. Whether you were captivated by the pageantry of the royal wedding, or even if you scoffed at the pomp and circumstance, at the excess and expense of the British royal wedding, it pales in comparison. It pales in comparison to Isaiah's vision of grandeur of God seated on his throne and the beauty that he witnesses in the temple. And Isaiah's vision expands as he describes heavenly creatures encircling the throne uh, above it. Seraphs, which are types or classes of angels. Apparently there's diversity even among the angels. Seraphs are apparently bright creatures. Seraph, the word seraph means burning ones. Yet as brilliant as they were, they hide their faces from the greater light of God, of God's presence. They are described as having six wings. With two, they are flying. With two, they're covering their faces. And with two, they cover their feet in the presence of God. And moving from the sense of sight to sound, Isaiah describes what he hears. The seraphs are calling to each other in the presence of God. They are saying, holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. By the way, the Apostle John in Revelation 4 has this same vision of God. The four living creatures who encircle the throne, who are with the six wings calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Many have taken this thrice holy proclamation found in Isaiah as, a, as an early nod to the Trinity, the threefold nature of God. I do believe that it is a reference to the plurality of God, which, as Scripture progresses, becomes more, uh, is revealed more and more until the New Testament is fully revealed, at least fully as much as we're able to grasp it. But hints, at, hints of it in the Old Testament So, uh, this, but it is more than that. It is also telling us something about the character of God. God is holy, supremely holy, thrice holy. Now, holy is not a household word, so it needs some unpacking. Holy speaks to something other, something that is transcendent. Holy implies something that is pure, that is perfect, that is complete, the absolute absence of evil. To that which is sacred or set apart, God is certainly all of these. But consider what Scripture also reveals about God, that He is love. God is holy and God is love. And there's a a logical connection between these two. If you think of holy as being um, moral purity, well, the moral commands of God are summed up in love, are they not? So if you wed holy and love, you get a kind of love. In fact, we sung about it a few moments ago, building our lives on the foundation of God's love, it means we need to understand that rightly. But if you wed holy and love, you get a kind of love that is nearly untouchable. That is untainted, unfettered, unfailing, irrevocable, unending, pure. And God is the fountain and the source of this love as well as light and of life. All of it so pure and perfected that to be in the presence of such a one is to be utterly undone. In a word melted, there are many testimonies, including my own, of being in God's presence and being completely and utterly drowned in the overwhelming love of God's presence. All that you can do is laugh or weep with joy to experience that love. Isaiah describes another sensory experience of seeing God and hearing the sound of the angels' voices calling. He says, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds of the temple shook and it was filled with smoke. Maybe that's another sensory, smoke. Maybe he even smelled the smoke. Uh, the, The prayers of God's people coming up before God. And uh, we sometimes hear, speaking of the sound that he heard as well, not only the voices, but the way that it shook the threshold and the doorposts of the temple. Once in a while, not very often anymore, once in a while, someone will complain that the drums are too loud, or the music's too loud, or the organ's too loud. But the voice of the angels calling to one another was so loud that the threshold of the temple. The, The doors rattled on their hinges at the sound of the angels calling to one another as they worship God. And then we move from what Isaiah saw and heard and felt to how it impacted him personally. He was completely undone. He was convicted and it prompted him to cry out, to make a confession before God. He says, woe is, woe is me, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord Almighty, the King of heaven and earth. What a curious conviction that Isaiah experienced. You never know how God's word how the, or the experience of God is going to impact you. How it will speak to you. Sometimes you will be awestruck with wonder and love, other times comfort and filled with hope, and still other times you will feel exposed, convicted, and vulnerable. Isaiah sees the incredible glory of God, he hears the angels in glory praising him, and he suddenly feels exposed, convicted by guilt and shame, afraid, even terrified to be in the presence of this holy and awesome God. But why the focus on his lips? Nothing mentioned of the lust of his eyes or the lust of his heart or his sexual sins. Nothing mentioned of greed or covetousness. Why the lips? Well, I don't know. Except that that was Isaiah's experience in this moment. Again, you never quite know how you're going to be convicted. What it is that God's going to reveal to you or show to you. And maybe it was in the in the words of the angels, maybe it was in their voices as they're worshiping God and praising God. And he's in the presence of the Holy. It was like holding a mirror in front of Isaiah that he could see himself. How have you been worshiping God? How have you been using your lips? And he's suddenly convicted: Woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live around people with unclean lips. This is the conviction that Isaiah felt. You know, James speaks at length about the way that we use our tongues. He writes, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. And then James says, My brothers and sisters, this should not be. It is duplicitous. It is hypocritical. It is damning. Do you remember that Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount said that if anyone anyone even calls his brother a fool, he's in danger of the fire of hell. This is the conviction that Isaiah felt, and he wasn't alone. We praise God. And with these same lips, we curse those made in God's image. Our words have power to bless or to curse. And Isaiah is acknowledging the ways that he, that we all are guilty of saying things that aren't loving or uplifting. And in our current culture, you don't have to search far or long to find examples of the ways that we speak in negative tones Condemning, critiquing, criticizing. We critique people on the basis of their ethnicity, the language they speak, the choices they make, their social status, their sexual orientation, their religion or lack of, whether they, are, whether they voted for Trump or didn't vote for him. Just yesterday, I'm in line, a long line, waiting to buy mulch. <laughs> Patiently waiting, trying to. And then the woman in front of me pulls out a checkbook Who writes checks anymore? I had to bite my tongue. We come together in worship to praise God with our lips. And then with these same lips, we grumble and complain. We lie and slander and gossip and malign and curse those who are made in the image of God. Friends, if you could see God, if you could see God in your neighbor, you would not dare to curse, to bully, to belittle, to judge, to demean or diminish anyone. Anyone? Yes, anyone. Do you know that the angels in heaven, Scripture says, do not even bring slanderous accusations against other celestial beings. And in the book of Jude, the archangel Michael was In a wrestling match with the devil. And the scripture says he did not even dare to bring an accusation of judgment against the devil. And here's the angels in heaven. They don't even say accusing words or demeaning words about the fallen angels or even about the devil. And yet we, who've been made in the image of God, use our lips to worship God at the same time to curse our fellow human beings who are made in the image of God. Woe is me! I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. We get a glimpse of the holiness of God, the absolute pure and sacred way that God loves We hear the words of Isaiah, the way that he's convicted. In fact, it reminds me of the Apostle Paul who writes in Romans, what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me? Isaiah is not cast out of God's presence. He is loved and cleansed. The seraphs, one of them, these burning ones, takes a hot coal from the altar and he touches Isaiah's lips with it. Purging away what is unclean. He says your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Isaiah is given absolution. He is assured that he is forgiven, that he is cleansed. This is a holy and loving and merciful God whose desire is to forgive and cleanse, to restore and mend, to reconcile and to redeem. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah is not melted. He's molded. He's not ruined. He's restored. He's not trashed. He's transformed. And then comes the voice of God. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Another hint of the plurality of God. Listen again. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Who will be God's witness to the world? Who will do God's work in the world? Who will build God's kingdom in the world? Who will be God's ambassador to the nations? Who? Answer? Those who see God. Those who are His. Those who have been forgiven and cleansed. Those who know their failing and weakness. Those who know the grace and the love of God. Isaiah, who was convicted and cleansed, is wholly yielded. He responds the only way that one can and will after experiencing God in so powerful a way. Here, here am I. Send me. Friends, may we have eyes to see and oh that we would be given eyes to see and hearts to respond. God is near. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty His glory fills the earth. Amen. Let's pray. God, this morning, our prayer is that you would give us eyes to see you to see your holiness to see your love to see you for who you are and all the vast ways God that you reveal yourself to us in the glory of your creation all around and in the potential glory of every human being God may we see and may we respond as Isaiah did here am I Send me. Amen. We are going to close this morning by singing that well-known hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. So again, as we are singing this, let's sing it in a way that shakes the doors. Let's sing it in the way that the angels would delight to join with us this morning and that we would bless God who right now is seated on the throne in our presence. Let's worship God with all our hearts.